Welcome to the first bonus episode of Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and today I talk to PhD candidate and general nerd Laura Richmond. It was a really interesting discussion to just hear the other side of science communication from a scientist. So let's just jump right in. Thanks for coming on Fact and Science Fiction. Um, I really appreciate it. If you want to take a few minutes to introduce yourself, um, go ahead. Yeah, I'm almost Dr. Laura, which means I'm, yeah, just finished up my PhD at the moment I, at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. I study epigenetics, which is um, very cool if you're a giant nerd like me. Um, and in my downtime, like to talk to kids and adults about the science of superheroes because that is the kind of nerd I am. <laughs> Great. Um, so uh, in my first episode, I kind of go through basic, uh, just a basic rundown of what epigenetics is and just kind of the history of the field. But you can go more into detail about what you actually study in, about epigenetics. Sure. So, um, I mean, epigenetics, as you probably already discussed, is literally means on top of genetics um so that is changes to dna to gene expression that aren't hard-coded in your dna sequence um and that are heritable either through uh, cell generations or through generations of an organism um what i study specifically are mechanisms of basically up and down regulating gene expression so i've uh built and modified a, a pre-existing system um, that essentially switches a gene on or switches it off or turns the volume up or turns the volume down um, with the aim of being able to sort of create synthetic gene networks and and yeah just synthetically regulate genes. There are um, a number of genes that in, that have a pathology that's based around the fact that the gene is either over or underexpressed, and that quite often is an epigenetic effect rather than an actual change in the DNA sequence. So being able to being able to modify the expression of those genes really is very very interesting um, for downstream applications like therapeutics, mm-hmm. um, for things like um, synthetic blood production. Um, so with humans, we produce three different forms of the, the beta chain of hemoglobin. Um, we produce a form um, that is fetal, so embryonic fetal and adult. Uh, obviously, produce different stages of development. Um, when you're making synthetic blood, you want to be able to produce adult beta globin, so you have to mimic this switch. Um, so things like that. It's, it's very, very helpful for a lot of things, and also just for understanding the basics of a gene network. Um, so in you know, in the human human genome, being able to essentially map which part of parts of the genome interact with which other parts of the genome, you know, which bits are these on and off switches. Um, and you have to be able to, can I swear? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you have to be able to screw with those, with those networks to, to be able to find out what's going on. So. Yeah, that's awesome. And, um, I've definitely heard of uh, epigenetic silencing, which is, you know, turning them off, but I didn't know yes. that you could just, you know, turn turn the volume up and down. Uh, can you go more into to what that what that means? Um, yeah, so essentially you are you are reversing epigenetic silencing um, by by switching it on. So 
to silence the gene, uh, what usually happens is that the the actual chromosome, the chromatin, is very, very condensed, so it's inaccessible to the factors that would switch the genes on. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens then to activate that gene is you're just getting in there with loads of stuff and you're opening up the chromatin so that the factors that switch it on can then access it and can turn it on. Um, yeah, with genes, a gene isn't necessarily just on or off, it's not binary. Um, there are different levels of expression you can get of a gene. So by throwing more um, more sort of activator proteins at the gene, you can increase the, um, the, the level of expression. Uh, similarly, by chucking some repressors at it, you can you can switch off. But if you have a gene that is very, very highly expressed in the cell type you're working on, then even if you absolutely hammer it with loads of repressors, you're probably not going to switch it off entirely. You're just really going to switch it down a bit. Cool. No, I get it. <laughs> um, so what what kind of inspired you to... Uh, to study this because a PhD is, I mean, it takes a lot of time. It's, it's very intensive. So, so what made you, uh, go into this, this field uh, to pursue a PhD? In all honesty, part of doing my PhD was kind of the knowledge that, so when I finished my undergraduate, I didn't start my PhD straight away. Um, I took a year out after I graduated to think about whether or not I wanted to do it because, like you say, it's very, uh, time consuming it's very stressful it's it's not something you sort of undertake lightly um and I decided over that time I took out that if I didn't do it I would probably or I would possibly regret it later on you can really only be out of academia for so long and still go back into it um and I didn't want to turn around in you know 10-15 years and be like damn it, I wish I'd done a PhD so I kind of went well I do love science. I, I want to stay working in science in some way. So let's go and do it. Whether or not that was a good decision mm-hmm. or not, I haven't quite figured out. But uh, but I'm doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so. do, do you want to stay in academia or do you want to um, move out into the private sector? That is a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I go through ups and downs of how I feel about academia. So... I mean, doing research is is kind of soul-destroying at times because part of the nature of science is that a huge percentage of it is things not working. You're trying to work out, why is this experiment not working? How can I optimise this experiment? And that is very, very hard. Like, that really does weigh on you mm-hmm. when you've been working on something for months sometimes and you just have nothing to show for it. But then when you do finally get the result, you are, like, walking on air. The question of whether or not I want to stay in academia really depends on how my week's been in the lab. Um, I don't think I want to stay in it long term. You know, I don't want to. I I don't want to like run my own lab. Um, but I'd I'd be probably interested in doing a little bit more research, particularly in the field that I work in. I, I think my sort of my true love <laughs> of is doing science communication and public engagement. Um, it's something I find incredibly rewarding, and it's something that. Uh, I think I'm really quite good at and it's honestly very nice just to have that instant gratification you know doing a show for an hour a couple of hours and you can see people are enjoying it and you know that it's been a good show and you immediately feel good about the fact that you've had a good day's work um instead of waiting you know three four months for hours out in the lab yeah yeah I definitely that was going to be my next question is just 
what does science communication mean to you? Like, how do you feel about the importance of science communication to the general public and to kids? Um, I mean, I think to to kids in particular, it's just really, really important because certainly when, when I was younger, when I was in, you know, when I was in primary school, um, I don't know what the equivalent of that is in the US, but when I was in primary school, I feel like science wasn't a big focus of what we studied, um, with the exception of like maths. Um, it wasn't really a big focus of what we studied. Um, it wasn't really something that a lot of discussion was had around. And it wasn't really something that you knew what kind of job you could do with it. Mm. You know, you could be a scientist, but like, what is that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really, I think it's really important to get in and talk to kids, not just to get them interested in science, but for them to realise what kind of what kind of different things they can do with it and the kind of different people that are involved as well. Because, again, I think a lot of the time people go in, you know, they talk to schools, they talk to kids, and it's it's very sort of, don't want to use the word professional, but they go in um, suit and briefcase and kids don't care. <laughs> uh, so I think part of the, uh, I think part, like some of the feedback certainly that I've gotten from schools I've gone into is that I don't necessarily look like what kids will assume a scientist looks like also the fact that I'm female um I get really good feedback from teachers who've said that the girls in their class have really enjoyed the fact that like a girl has gone in and spoken to them about science um so that's 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 really nice um and I think where you've got the sort of the impact of of research and of academia is that you know you can be these world changers you can be making some massive scientific discovery uh, and that's great and that's really rewarding but you also need people who will go in and make the next generation of scientists mm-hmm. make those big discoveries yeah. and, and get those get those kids interested um, and we also so the part of the one of the projects i've been working on is that we focus on the sort of the lowest the lowest performing schools within certain postcodes that don't necessarily get the same opportunities um so they don't necessarily get that this is stuff this is something that they can do because they they're not really told that as much. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that is really important. So Absolutely. And also with and with the general public as well, just to there there's always there's always things in the news. There's always something about, you know, some bit of science and it's not always broken down and communicated in a way that the general public get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of it is funded by the money that comes from the general public. So it's you know, it's kind of nice for them to know where their money's going. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's going to be my next episode is kind of the difference between when governments and universities fund research and then when companies and or you know, corporations fund research. Absolutely. But I also wanted to go back to something about what you said where, you know, kids don't really understand what what science is and what scientists do. Like one of the realizations I had as an adult was just the uncertainty of science like you know when you're in school you're doing experiments but there's obviously a result that you're trying to get and that your teacher you know your instructor is like trying to get you to get just so you know the process of it but you know when you're actually a scientist and you're doing experiments like like you said there are months you wait and it's not working. And what do you do with that? And it's not and you don't learn that in school. And that's like a part of critical thinking and problem solving that I think a lot of students, not just in primary school, but even older, like could benefit from learning. 
there's some uncertainty, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. You know, that's just how science is. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're totally right. Um, when you're learning something like that at a young age, like I said, you have an experiment and your teacher is, is leading you towards this result and you're always going to get that result. Um, and I think there's... I think there's maybe a little bit too much of that in, uh, in schools nowadays that you are very much being being kind of led towards something, and I I don't think that kids are always pushed as hard to actually think about something for themselves. Mm-hmm. They're kind of they're being led towards the result because obviously, like they need to they need to pass whatever mm-hmm. it is they're they're doing. Um, so yeah, I think the the idea that sometimes you just need to figure out what the hell's going on for yourself Mm -hmm. is is a very useful thing. Yeah, exactly. So I definitely want to hear more about your um, superheroes um, events and and shows. So could you talk more about that? I could talk forever about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite topic of conversation. So um, yeah, Superhero Science is a, a project I've been working on for a few years now that is a sort of, it's a spin-off um, of, of the company I work with um, from the original show, which was Zombie Science, which was the science of the sort of, the zombie apocalypse and how a zombie outbreak might occur. And Superhero Science is exactly what it says on the tin. It is the science behind how superheroes' powers work and also kind of behind maybe how certain superheroes might have got their powers and what would have to happen theoretically for mm-hmm. someone to get those powers so it talks about you know the basics of a cell and what is a cell and what is dna and um how things can change your dna and that's what would you know in the science fiction world that's what would give you a superpower and then how these powers work so something like lasers how would laser vision work how would electricity work and it's in the the format of it's about an hour long and it's kind of an interactive lecture almost. So it's got it's got a storyline kind of running through like this. Our our villain has stolen something, and we need to get it back. And it's essentially like a choose your own adventure. The kids have got different options to pick from superpowers, and then we make this superhero, and it goes away and saves the day. Um, so it's very interactive. The kids are always answering questions. They're always having input because nobody wants to listen to me talk at them for an hour. Um, I guess some people might, but very strange so yeah the kids are always kind of having having input on it and it's a it's just a bit of fun for them but all the science in it obviously is totally legit um some some creative license but mm-hmm. the science is all real and what i've done recently so i've just done a couple of a couple of adult shows is just purely 18 plus versions of it so what i found when i was doing sort of shows to the general public was that the jokes that the kids didn't pick up on, their parents really enjoyed. Uh, and I went, hey, this might work for adults. So I've done a couple of adult shows. It's really lovely being able to swear <laughs> and being able to not sort of constantly think, oh, I can't make that joke to a room full of 10-year-olds. Um, yeah, I've done a couple of adult shows and they've been just so much fun. Just really, really good. Um, I get to make lots of terrible puns. <laughs> but it's... Um, yeah, it's it's just been such a good time doing it. Uh, we won we won an award last year or the year before, um, which was again just really just really rewarding. The kind of again the kind of gratification that I don't always get from lab work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I love it. It's just I 
get such a buzz from doing it. And I think I think I know that that's definitely where I need to go, sort of career-wise. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing that I talk about is kind of like your uh, superheroes, like using superheroes to understand science as I talk about how science fiction, like the real stuff about science fiction. So I wanted to know if there was any science fiction um, that you found like inspiring or that, or you found like, oh, they get it. And if there was anything like that. I think, maybe it's just me, but I think once you, once you are inverted commas, a scientist, mm-hmm. Um, you become very critical <laughs> of the, the science being used in um, in either shows or books or whatever uh, and you do have a bit of a tendency to, to pick holes in it mm-hmm. um, I am a huge fan of Orphan Black mm-hmm. so that was uh, as much as I, I, I picked a few holes they're, they're, they're pretty they're pretty good with their uh, with their actual real science and that is really nice mm-hmm. <laughs> that is really nice like as a predictive scientist to actually see um oh i'm trying to think what else now yeah that's that's the one that kind of that kind of stands out for me particularly because it is so genetic it's so much about genetics mm-hmm. it's not just science in general um and i'm like it's it's my subject so mm-hmm. <laughs> so i love that yeah, and to have, you know, a character who studies that field, too, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm basically Cosima. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get about the being critical. Like, uh, my girlfriend is a nurse, and so anytime she watches a show that ha- takes place in a hospital, she's like, they're not even using the right equipment. It doesn't happen like that at all. The so, ones yeah. that always really get me are um, true crime shows. <laughs> like, they're really, really bad cheesy cheesy true crime shows and they'll be doing something with dna and i'm just sitting there like well no wonder it took you so long to solve the mystery (laughs) what are you doing oh yeah for forensic evidence i think Mm -hmm. i've heard that um csi like really distorted people's view (laughs) of it they think like oh they're there's dna at the crime scene obviously we have the right guy and it just doesn't work like that. <laughs> and then it takes it takes a while too, doesn't it? Like, um, you know, they'd send evidence off to a lab, and then just like a couple hours later, they're like, "We have a match." That's doesn't. Work like that. I mean, if you're comparing if you're comparing two DNA samples, so if you have, you know, I don't know, a DNA sample from a suspect, a DNA sample from a crime scene, you can compare those pretty quickly. Mm, okay. Um, you could, you could have a very sort of a very rough uh, comparison within a day. So yeah, I mean, two hours is is pushing it, <laughs> but you can you can have a very like yeah a very rough comparison within a day. That was all the questions that I kind of had prepared, um, but I think it would be kind of fun if you could give me like an example from your superhero show. Like, what superhero ability, like, what's the real science behind it? Okay. Uh, let's go with... Okay, so one of the obstacles that the that the audience has to get their superhero past is this hallway. 
that's guarded by video cameras and should the camera see you you get shot with a laser <laughs> uh, so one of the one of the options they have for this is power of camouflage so something like um like mystique from the x-men so the comparison that i use for them to sort of understand how this works is cuttlefish so obviously you have chameleons their chameleons are very good at camouflage but cuttlefish are absolutely fantastic at it it's unreal how good cuttlefish are um if you want an example google it look for cuttlefish camouflage videos mm-hmm. it's it's impressive um so the reason they're so good at that is because of the layers of cells in their skin so the outer layer is essentially transparent and then they have three layers of what we call chromatophores um which are cells that can that can be a different colour, basically. So they have these little pockets of colour in them, and uh, as a response to to a stimulus, these pockets of colour get pulled flat by muscles. Um, so think about it like if you had a spot of paint in a balloon, and you pulled that balloon tight, the spot of paint would like spread out and would cover the surface. Um, so that's basically what these chromatophores do. So they can be brown, they can be red, or they can be yellow. So the mixture of those three colours, you can you can get a fairly broad range. But the the other two types of cells, which I believe are called leucophores and iridophores, I like you might want to do a fact check on that guys. <laughs> yeah, I can't actually remember. Something along those lines. Um so one of those is basically a mirror. Um it just bounces light back. Um and the other type splits light up, so it essentially does what's happening in a raindrop. When a rainbow's being made, it's splitting the light up into all of its component colours. So when you have like all of those five types of cells, so all the chromatophores and all the other and the other two working together, um, cuttlefish can just be like any colour you can think of, really. Um, they can make themselves look kind of metallic. Uh, it makes them just exceptional at hiding um, either as predators or from predators. So I think that's that's one of my favourite ones because I just think it's it's really cool, um, and I do use a lot of sort of comparisons in na- to nature in the show to to kind of get across that you know these things are done by by a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it talk, we talk about geckos and electric eels, um, sharks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, my uh, um, my favourite animal is the octopus. For a lot of the kind of reasons, um, about the cuttlefish, but, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but can't they, do they actually like change the texture of their skin or do they just like make it look like it's texturized? I can't remember. Like when they're camouflaging. I believe they can slightly change the texture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I frequently am. <laughs> But no, I believe they can actually slightly change the texture of it. Um, not like dramatically so, but I think I think we can change the texture. I'm probably totally wrong now, and everyone's going to listen to this. And think I'm an idiot, but that's fine. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, we don't. We're not like looking at notes in front of us. We're just we're just talking. I know. I really should have prepared more. No, I just <laughs> I just for ten hours a day, kind of gets in the way. Yeah. You have enough notes. It's already. Well, um, that's all I have today. I want to thank Laura for coming on Fact and Science Fiction. Um, if you want to plug any 
promotes any social media or your show, if you're in Glasgow, you can go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's been interesting. I love talking about science. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can follow Superhero Science um, at, I believe, uh, Super Science AOA uh, on Twitter and on Facebook. So there's news about shows if you happen to be in Glasgow mm-hmm. <laughs> and some occasional random science facts and, I don't know, myth busting and just generally me being a bit of a nerd. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Slaybob also being a bit of a nerd. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's that's pretty much it. And watch this space for whether or not Laura manages to finish her PhD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. So that was the first bonus episode of the pod. Laura's Twitter handles and Facebook pages are linked in the episode description, as well as on the pod blog, factandsci-fi.blogspot.com. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review. Follow the pod at Fact and Sci-Fi on Twitter and Instagram. Next time, I discuss the corporatization and privatization of science. It's a topic I've been thinking about a lot recently, and I'm excited to dig in. So thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.